Okay, the kids are dismissed. Man, you know, every time David comes up here, I just am so convicted by what he says. I'm like, why do I have to go preach now? I mean, I, I feel like I need some time with the Lord to repent of all of my ways. And, uh, but that's, that's a good thing. So I have to do a kind of quick repentance there um, and rely on God's grace, as I should. Um, you know, the guys had come to me during the greeting time and said, do I want them to set up a, a tent above the pulpit because it's so warm and it's going to be like 80 degrees and would it be better for me? And um, I thought, you know, I'll just try it without it. I'll probably repent later and it'll be up next week. But And then I thought, you know, this is a really good opportunity for me to apply the topic of this sermon, which is do not grumble or argue <laughs> and to be content with the situation that you find yourself in. And so I think that's applicable right now, but even in our lives. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. And let's stand together now as we read God's word. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. The Apostle Paul says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue on in our series in Philippians, in the theme of joy, we're reminded of this last verse where Paul said um, that, he, they, that we should be glad and we should rejoice with Paul. That we should have joy in all circumstances, not just as a matter of self-will, like David was saying, but also primarily because we know that we serve a father who is in control. We serve a father who is powerful, who is sovereign. We serve you, Lord. And we can take joy knowing that even though we don't understand the circumstances, even though we might be here this morning not wanting the circumstance we're in, waiting and waiting for it to change, Lord, we can take joy in knowing that we ultimately um, don't have to bear that burden and that you love to give good gifts to your children and that uh, you will remind us of that here this morning. We want to be a people who do not grumble and argue, but rather, Lord, are pure and blameless. It's our testament to you and the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Thank you. So as we continue on in our series, Joy, the theme of joy, how to have joy in different circumstances. And we go through the, Paul's epistle 
to the Philippians. We're now on this next passage, verse 14 through 18. And the primary topic that we're going to look at today is something I think we can all relate to. Um, Grumbling, arguing. And we are going to focus on the following areas. We're going to ask ourselves, what is the role of, of grumbling and arguing in our lives? What is, where are we at in terms of just how this affects our lives right now, grumbling and arguing? We're going to ask ourselves the question, what does grumbling and arguing have to do with God and our faith? And we're going to ask ourselves the question of what is our witness to the world when we grumble and argue in front of them? Versus being content in the Lord. Why is that important? So the topic is grumbling and arguing. And um, if you look in our passage in verse 14, Paul says, and this is, I think, this, one of two times that he says, do all things. So this kind of a blanket statement in uh, Philippians 4, he's going to say, do not be anxious about anything. We'll get to that in uh couple months. But here is the first statement that kind of just captures everything. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling is when we talk to ourselves and we are like, ah, it's so unfair, so wrong. We have conversations with ourselves, angry conversations whether that's directed at ourselves. Why am I like this? Terrible. Why is that person like that? And we just grumble in a sinful way. Arguing is when we do it with other people. We grumble with other people. And there's a lot to grumble about. There's a lot to argue about in our society today. Um, You can look at politics. A lot of grumbling. A lot of arguing. You can look at the conversation on race, a lot of grumbling, a lot of arguing, not saying everything is wrong, but there's a lot of it. Certainly in the conversation on COVID, a lot of grumbling, a lot of arguing. But even on a personal level, how can you guys, um, what examples can we give of how we we see, we'll make it safe. You're talking for a friend right now. You're not talking about yourself. But I'm just curious. Just yell out a couple of of examples of how you've seen, not on a society-wide level, like politics or COVID or whatever that might be. What what have you noticed in the lives of other people where they, not you, have grumbled and argued in certain areas? What would you say in what relationships and what topics on a personal, on-the-ground level? Who would give an example? Having to do chores. That's obvious. I think we have a little bit of that going on, grumbling and arguing uh, almost every day in our, our home. Um, anyone else? A quick example. Road rage, absolutely, right? And it's being in LA, I, you just, especially I live you know, in Long Beach, and so you just have to let it go because um, a lot of crazy people, good people, but some crazy people there. Um, other thoughts, other topics, arguing, grumbling. It just immediately goes from zero to 100, right? And that's an interesting point, too, because the grumbling and the arguing can immediately come out of us. 
right? It doesn't kind of build up. A lot of times it has the ability to go zero to 100. What about money? Do we grumble and argue about money? Yeah, anyone who's been married, um, I, I know that internally you're raising your hand on that one. Unemployment, grumbling and arguing. The work situation we find ourselves in, or the grumbling, arguing situation, co-workers. That we, I mean, uh, I've worked in the secular world for many years, as well as being a pastor and, and uh, some combination of both or one or the other. Um, you see that in every workplace I've ever worked at, whether it's the school district or Nordstrom or wherever that is. I've worked in the secular, always grumbling about co-workers. Uh, what about our health? Absolutely, right? It can be going well. Doctor says something unexpectedly, and um, it can easily turn into a lack of faith. We can grumble about our parents, our children, grumbling about their parents. Or even as adults, we can still grumble about our parents. Parents can grumble about their children, argue. We can grumble and argue about the fact that we're single longer than we want to be. Or feel we should be. We can grumble and argue about our friends. Um, And certainly social media is a perfect platform for grumbling and arguing. Seems like every other post that's not um, some mundane advertisement. Or some um, picture of where someone went out to lunch. Has to do with who's grumbling and who's arguing about what. So we're going to start from the place that when Paul says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing, we're all guilty, whether you're Christian or not. And we see this rampant in society. And we just kind of assume today that the world is so bad. The world is such in such a sense of disrepair and discord that we just kind of say, well, this is just the way the world is. And there's nothing really to be done. We just kind of accept it. And yet this is not a recommendation. It's not an encouragement for us to uh, try and live better lives. This is actually a command from the Lord. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And that's a very hard thing. Now, when Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing, what is he not talking about? And then what is he talking about? When he says this in verse 14, what Paul is not talking about, not grumbling, not arguing, is the following. He is not saying that you cannot be righteously angry about evil. If you see evil happening, true evil, in society or in people, it is not grumbling or arguing in general to... Be upset at that, to speak out against that, or even to act in godly ways to address that. That is not grumbling or arguing when you have a sense of righteous anger over what you're seeing that is wrong. Jesus certainly went into the, uh, the temple twice during his ministry, and he had righteous anger when he saw God's people being taken advantage of uh, by people who were ripping them off financially. So grumbling and arguing is not expressing righteous anger in a way that God would approve. Grumbling and arguing also is not expressing emotional distress. 
You can express emotional distress to the Lord and it not be grumbling or arguing. You can read the Psalms and throughout the Psalms, King David is saying something to the effect. It seems like in every other Psalm he wrote, something to the effect of how long, O Lord, how long will my enemies prosper over me? How long, O Lord, will I be on the wrong from them? And that's not grumbling or arguing. That's expressing your emotional distress to the Lord. And we know that because David, almost every single time that he says, How long, O Lord? Where are you? Why is this happening? He usually ends the psalm after that by saying, And yet I will place my trust in the Lord. And yet, I will remember what you have done in the past. So David expressing that, and you and I expressing that, when we have a situation where it just comes upon us, this this detour in our lives, or an evil is brought into our lives, perhaps not even of our own doing, it's okay to say that's wrong. It's okay to be upset and something that is evil that has happened. It's okay to express emotional distress to the Lord. So grumbling and arguing is not that. So what is grumbling and arguing? When you look through the pages of the Old and New Testament, you essentially see grumbling and arguing, the type that moves from righteous anger and moves from the expression of emotional distress, and now starts to move into a rebellion against God, starts to move in a sinful direction. What is the difference between the two? When you look throughout the pages of Scripture, you basically find four large examples of when grumbling and arguing actually moved beyond what was uh, permissible into something that was wrong. Just briefly to summarize, number one, Grumbling and arguing move to a sinful state. When you look at the life of Israel, when you look at the life of Israel, uh, there were many times, at least a dozen times throughout Exodus and Numbers, where the Israelites were grumbling and arguing. Why? Because they had been brought out of Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. When you look throughout the pages of books like Exodus, and numbers. What you find is Israel grumbled and argued against the Lord for many reasons. They grumbled and argued by saying, we want to go back to Egypt. want to go back to the place where can we, we can drink fresh water, eat fish, eat cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic, and, and not have to eat this manna stuff. So they argued about the food. They argued about the water. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. And they grumbled towards the Lord. I can think back to my own life of how many times I've wanted to go back to my own Egypt. And knowing that represented slavery to me. But saying, you know what, Lord, you're, you're just taking too long. Um, there's too many delights that I could enjoy back in my own Egypt. I, I just want to go back there. They argued and grumbled going back to Egypt. Secondly, they argued and grumbled. And they started, they said, you know what, Moses, he's taking too long to come down from the mountain when he left us to go get the law. We want to worship the golden calf. 
And so they grumbled against Aaron to go worship something else. They grumbled about their misfortunes. They grumbled about when they came to the cusp of going into the promised land. They said, no, too dangerous, too many giants in the land. Let's grumble against our leaders. Let's go back the other way. They didn't want to enter the promised land. They grumbled against their leaders, Moses and Aaron. So number one, Israel grumbled in many ways throughout their own wilderness journey, just like we tend to grumble through our own wilderness journey. And what we discover is that the Lord dealt with Israel through their grumbling and arguing in different ways. There were some times the Lord said, you know what? I hear you. I'm going to be patient with you. I'll give you clean water. I'll give you manna. I'll give you meat to eat uh, because I'm the Lord and I'm patient with you. And sometimes when we grumble, like he dealt with Israel, the Lord's just patient with us. And he said, you know, even though you're grumbling, arguing against me, I'll give you what you need because I am loving towards you. There were other times where because of Israel's grumbling and arguing, the Lord struck people with leprosy. That happened to Miriam when she came against uh, Moses. There were other times when Israel grumbled and fire came down from the sky. There were other times that Israel grumbled and argued. And at one point, there was about 250 men in a thing called Korah's Rebellion. They were grumbling against the leaders of Israel. And they died. The earth swallowed them and their families up. And there was a plague that came out and hit Israel. About 16,000 people died. Israel, because of their grumbling and arguing, at one point was banned from the promised land. And a journey that should have taken them about a year from the time they exited Egypt to go into the promised land, about a year, ended up being 40 years. And God said, you know what? You're grumbling, you're arguing. I'm going to make you wait. And what we discover from this first example of grumbling and arguing is that God deals with grumbling and arguing in different ways. Sometimes he's just very patient with us. Sometimes he just kind of disciplines us. Maybe it's not leprosy, but uh, he, he, he lets us know that he is all-powerful and he disciplines us. And then there's other times where he just gives us massive consequences. And sometimes he just makes us wait a lot longer than we thought we would have to, like 40 years versus one year. And if you think that God is is not in his place to do this. Let me ask you a question. In your own life, in my life, how many of us like to be around argumentative people? How many of us like to be around people who are always grumbling? We don't like that to be around those people, right? They just bring us down. And we either want to get away from them or we argue and it's just, it just, all this chaos breaks out. In fact, the book of Proverbs says, In Proverbs 22, make no friendship with an angry man, lest you learn his ways and find yourself in a snare. And so why would God want to be around us in in a way when we're like that? So you see that grumbling and arguing in Israel. Secondly, you see grumbling and arguing when the Pharisee scribes and the crowds did not believe Jesus when Jesus said he is the Messiah. You see that in the Gospel of Luke. You see that in the Gospel of John. Thirdly, you see grumbling and arguing, not just in the relationship with God, not just in 
believing Jesus was the Messiah. But thirdly, you see grumbling and arguing can happen in the church. James chapter four and chapter five talks about when you can be in a church and people grumble against one another. And James raises something very interesting, James four. He says, the church grumbles against one another for primarily two reasons. One is we see what other people have. We don't have it. We covet it. And so it incites hatred in our hearts. And so we grumbling comes from covetous, number one. And secondly, grumbling comes from sinfully judging other people and being impatient with the Lord during seasons of suffering. And number four, grumbling and arguing comes at, to us through false teachers. Jude says that one of the marks of a false teacher is that they're constantly grumbling in their life, constantly not content with what they have, which makes sense because false teachers are known to be greedy. So in verse 14, when Paul says, do not grumble, do not argue, we're looking at what's not, what it is, and what are the consequences of it. And I think at this point in verse 14, one of the things we learn is that We want to stay away from it as much as we can. As much as we can, if God is looking down upon us and saying, okay, I understand you express your distress and I want you to be upset at the things that make me upset. But at what point does my grumbling just turn into unbelief in the Lord? And that can be very dangerous for our faith because it invites the Lord's discipline. It invites the Lord's judgment. And um, there are reasons for that, which we'll get into in a moment. Verse 15, he says, the reason why God's people should not be known as a grumbling or disputing people, verse 15, is because this is one of the definitions to be blameless and innocent. These words blameless and innocent in the Greek had the idea of metal that was pure, that was not, that was not, that was uh, refined and was not mixed with other metals, blameless and pure. Paul actually had prayed to the Philippian church. If you go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, this was one of Paul's prayer, prayers for the Philippian church, that they would be pure and blameless. He prays in verse 9 of chapter 1, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul wants the church to be pure and blameless before Christ. So he prayed that for the church. When you go to Philippians chapter four, he also expressed the importance of being pure and blameless. Chapter four, verse four through seven, he says that we are to rejoice in the Lord. We are to be reasonable, verse five, because we're knowing that the Lord is at hand. And that we are to um, not be anxious about anything in prayer and supplication to let our requests be known to God. To God. I'm sorry, and skip down to verse 8. And so he, that we may be pure and focus on what is excellent. And so when you combine all of those verses, one of the things Paul is saying here is that we turn to God, whether we choose to pray to him or choose to focus on him, to not be complaining or grumbling. And finally, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, 
Paul talks about this. He says, I'm not speaking about being in need, but I've learned how to be content in every situation. I've learned how to know how to face plenty or want and to be content. I can do all things through Christ. It's me summarizing those verses. That's Paul's definition of being pure and blameless. And he says in verse 15 through 16, as we go on in our passage, he says that the reason why we want to be pure and blameless is not just towards God, but because we have a witness towards an unbelieving world. He says in verse 15 that we want to be without blemish, without blemish in, a, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation amongst which we shine like stars in the sky. See, God wants to hear us. He wants to hear our struggles. And he wants to be moved by us. He wants us to know that what makes him angry should make us angry. But Paul wants the witness of me and of you to be one of not grumbling and arguing. Because when the world looks at us, what Paul is essentially getting to is he's saying, if outsiders look at the church and you come to worship with us and we're just saying, oh man, I just, I don't, I just don't know what I'm going to do about my finances. I don't know what I'm going to do about my relationships. I don't know what I'm going to do about my health. I don't know, want, know what I'm going to do about all this. And I'm just, I believe, but I'm kind of lacking a sense of hope. Then it doesn't provide a sense of hope for the unbeliever. Because in a crooked and twisted generation, in a dark generation out there, people are coming to church and they want to see believers that are saying, yeah, I get it. I'm unemployed too. Yeah, I get it. I'm struggling with my finances. Yeah, I get it. My aunt, yeah, she just got diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, you know, I get it. I, I don't, um, I have my own struggles with X, Y, and Z. But you know what? I'm not grumbling and I'm not arguing with God. I don't know why he has me in this place, but uh, I want you to leave the interaction with me um, with a sense that uh, I don't have all the answers and I'm struggling, but I still, it hasn't shaken my hope in God. Uh, You know, sometimes I, I make it a point in these sermons and in my conversations with people to be very honest about where I'm at in my own spiritual journey. And you guys have seen that over the years. And I think uh, there, there's something very good about that on one hand. You get to see how I'm trying to live it out. But I also have to be careful on the other hand that uh, my honesty does not turn into complaining and arguing. And anytime I I've, I've sh- feel like I've shared too much or been too honest, or kind of not left it on a hopeful note, I generally try and call the person back or email them and say, you know what, Uh, I felt like I was just kind of talking for like 15 minutes. And I I want to emphasize that where I'm coming from, it's a struggle for me, but I haven't lost hope in the Lord. It's a struggle for me, and I do believe that God is working all things out for the good of those who love him, Romans chapter 8. And I think we need to strive for that because if we leave people on a negative note, uh, it's very disheartening, not just for the church, 
but for unbelievers as well. And so when he goes on, he says in verse 16 through 18, he says, I want you to not complain, to not grumble. I want you to be blameless and pure, not just for God, not just for the sake of your testimony to a wicked generation, but in 16 through 18, he gives a third reason. He says, because you're holding fast to the word of life so that I, in the day of Christ, that's I, Paul's talking about himself, may be proud that I, Paul, who invested in you, who planted you as a church, Philippians, in Acts chapter 16, did not spend my time in vain. Even though I'm getting ready to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of my faith. Remember, Paul's writing this from a jail cell. He didn't know if he's going to be released. He could have died there, although he did get released. He's saying, even if this is happening, verse 17, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And I want you to be glad and rejoice with me. Third reason why it's important not to be known as a grumble or an argue as a Christian. It's not just for your own testimony to the Lord. It's not just for the testimony to the church and the world. But it's also to the testimony to the church leaders. Paul is literally saying here in verse 16 through 18, I want to be able to look at you guys. And I know it's difficult. You know, you're, you're a Roman colony, Philippians. You're going through difficulty. Um, but I, I want you to learn to be content with little or a lot, Philippians 4, like I have. And if I can see that, Paul saying to them, I will take great joy that my investment to you has not been in vain. And I will rejoice. I will rejoice. That is essentially what Paul is saying here in verse 16 through 18. And that is very important. You know, if you think about Paul's ministry, why did Paul, why did Paul have such endurance? Why did Paul have such passion for his ministry? I mean, the guy's being beaten, beaten, he's being whipped, he's being tortured, he's being betrayed throughout most of his ministry. What kept this guy going? And you say, well, yeah, he met Jesus. That makes sense. Yeah, he, um, he uh, made disciples. That made sense. That kept him going. But I think one of the things that kept Paul going is that he was able to look around and say, you know what? I'm looking at your lives. And you came to faith. I baptized you. You're growing in the Lord. And as I look at you as a church, you are living as a distinct witness before the world. In a grumbling and arguing world, you are living differently. Doesn't mean you don't have problems. Doesn't mean you don't have distress. But you haven't lost your faith in the Lord. And you're, you're exemplifying that for others. Paul expressed this. He said in Philippians chapter 4, he said, you know what, you Philippians, you're my joy, you're my crown of boasting. He said in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, you, who's my hope and joy and crown of boasting? It's you Thessalonians. And I can tell you that is absolutely true for me as a pastor. You know, when I, I have pastored for over two decades. And when I look at some of the churches that I've pastored, um, and I think most pastors have this testimony, it's really beautiful when you're pastoring a church 
where people are getting along, where people are helping each other through their struggles, where people are saying, it's difficult, but I'm here and I'm enduring in the faith and I'm going to keep trusting in the Lord. I mean, I, I will go run a marathon for those people. But I've also had times in my pastoral ministry where people have a lot of discord, a lot of arguing, a lot of disunity, a lot of grumbling against one another. I've, I've seen people in church who um, are really on fire. They, they rise up like shooting stars, like, like stars in the, in the sky, right? And they're shining brightly when everything's going well. And then something difficult comes into their life and they just fall like a shooting star. And like, you know, I'm out of here. I'm not just out of here from this church and going to another church. I'm just really out of here for the church. I'm out of here with God. And they're grumbling. And I can tell you, it just brings deep distress to my heart as a pastor when I see that. And so when I see this, like Paul, it brings great joy. When I can look out at a church and say, I have my struggles. I have my small group that I can share this with. They're bearing my sinful burdens along with me. They're helping me through the trial. But man, you know what? I'm, I'm here. I'm here, pastor. I'm, and it's not primarily here. That I'm here with the Lord. You know, Paul, um, Paul said that he fought the good fight. He finished the race and he kept the faith. And I think him meeting Jesus, him keeping the faith, him being chosen, by, those are all important. But Paul looking out at a congregation that was holding fast the word of life and through their testimony, through incredible struggle, we're able to say, you know what? We're not going to be known as a grumbling, arguing church. Brought a great sense of joy to him. When I was younger, uh, when I was first starting out in ministry, I, I can literally tell you the things that impressed me about the Christian faith. I can tell you about what impressed me about ministry. And when I was first starting out as a pastor, what impressed me as a young pastor were things like this. Um, I'm impressed by a person's giftedness in ministry. I'm impressed by how large of a church this person has. I'm impressed by the success of their ministry. Okay, so that, or I'm impressed with their vast theological knowledge. And those things can be really good. But when I looked at secular, the secular world, what impressed me, even as a young pastor, is I'd say, I'm impressed by how much money you have. I'm impressed by you're just living the American dream. You've got the spouse, the kids, the house, this, 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 this. And those are the things that used to impress me when I first started in ministry, either from a secular standpoint or from a ministry standpoint. I think most pastors can, can relate to that. What has changed about me as I've gotten older, and I'm old enough now to say this, um, I've lived enough life, been a pastor long enough, is those things are nice, but they don't impress me anymore. I'll tell you what impresses me. Um, what impresses me is when I see Christians who endure to the end. What impresses me is when I see Christians who are able to maintain a focus on keeping disciples or making disciples of Jesus Christ. What impresses me is when I see Christians who have a compassion for the poor. Because those three things are very hard to do over a lifetime. But the fourth thing that really impresses me 
is when I see believers go through not good times, but difficult times. And it all comes to us. Sometimes those difficult times are very extreme. Sometimes they come out of nowhere. Sometimes they come and they just don't go away. You're there for years. Sometimes something happens in your life and, and it just really kind of changes the entire trajectory. Maybe it's not your fault. Maybe it just kind of happened and life is that way. That's all going to happen to every single one of us in some form or another. It just depends on what season of life it's going to come to you. But the fourth thing that impresses me now as I've gotten older is not just people who endure, make disciples and are compassionate to the poor, but people who, when difficulty comes, they can express their emotional distress but they don't lose their faith in God. They don't end up in a permanent posture or a long-term posture of grumbling towards the Lord, arguing with the Lord in a way that expresses unbelief in the Lord. That impresses me now. Because what I've come to realize as I've gotten older is that When difficulty comes, and we're not perfect, but when we can say, Lord, I wouldn't have wanted it this way. I wouldn't have chosen it this way. Maybe I had something to do with where I'm at. Maybe it wasn't all my fault. Nevertheless, I'm here. And I think ultimately, when Paul's saying don't grumble or argue, he's really saying this. Do we trust in the sovereignty of God in the end? And do we say, Lord, um, for whatever reason, you know your ways are higher than mine. You, you either caused it or you allowed it either way. But I know you're going to work through it. And you're going to work through it for the good of those who love you. And I'm not going to give up on you. Because um, there's good things that are going to come of this. And you're not going to leave me through this. So I'm not going to be the one who leaves you. Because you won't be the one who leaves me. And in that, I can be thankful for. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, as we have looked briefly um, at a very difficult topic, perhaps there's been some conviction, I know for myself, Um, so many things that I need to change my own ways. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that replaces grumbling and arguing with thankfulness. That we would be honest enough with you to know that you are a good heavenly father who loves to hear from us, but also not cross over into a place where we shouldn't be in a place of unbelief in your sovereign design for our lives. And so, Lord, I know that you are making City Bible Church into a church that will shine into the darkness of the world. That will be a tremendous encouragement and blessing to those who lead her. And ultimately, Lord, that we will stand before you as pure and blameless, having trusted in you 
And maybe that is the word some of us need to hear this morning, Lord, that our prayer is that we may trust in you, less grumbling and arguing, and more thankfulness and trust. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.